and put your bulletins away. Now, this morning we have the pr- privilege and pleasure of hearing my brother-in-law, Austin Jacobs, speak. Um, Austin and I grew up together. Uh, I don't remember him as much as I remember his sister because I was in love with her. <laughs> And he was somebody who was there, uh, but as <laughs> and, and hung out with my brothers. But uh, uh, as we have grown and as we've uh, gotten closer, Austin is in uh, no uncertain terms one of my best friends in the world, and somebody I respect endlessly. Austin is, works for an organization called uh, Acts Two, which is a which is a church consulting organization out of Springfield, Missouri, where he helps churches become healthy. Is kind of what he does. For a living, and other than that, he's an adjunct professor at Evangel University, and he's a track coach, which is why he's skinnier than I am. Uh, and uh, but above all of that, uh, he's just a good person and somebody I respect and love. And I'm excited for you uh, to get to hear him today. So, Austin, if you come up, awesome. Yeah, greet him as he comes. Thanks. Well, thanks, Pastor Nick. Those were kind words. It's a joy to be with you today. Um, I am the beneficiary of the, the people who are sitting on the second row, my, my parents and uh, Nick's parents. Uh, Nick's parents were some of those who, uh, the adults in the church who um, had a positive impact on my life. So when I was dedicated, they were an answer to that prayer. Um, so, so thanks, Brad and Bridget. Uh, and then my wife, Hillary, is also seated here in the second row. Uh, and... Um, she and our son, Jack, are here with me today. He's the little guy running around in the bow tie and the red shoes. So hopefully not running too much. We're working on our walking feet. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a joy to, to be with you today. I'm going to talk about um, uh, a text that, that you probably know well. When in doubt, go to Matthew 5, to the Beatitudes. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to focus kind of in on uh, verses 13 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, if you have a, a Bible uh, close to you, you can, you can turn there, and, and we'll, we'll end up there. Uh, as Nick said, I, I work for uh, an organization called the Acts 2 Journey. So we work with churches all over the United States, um, helping them to just kind of recalibrate some things that, that might be a little bit off the mark or... Um, uh, if they if they've recognized something that that maybe isn't quite healthy in their in their church culture, um, they will call in uh, not me but my bosses <laughs> uh, to to do that that work of consulting. And we've worked with probably I haven't been there for I've been there for about three years, but the organization has existed for probably close to ten years, and we've worked with um, probably uh, over a thousand churches. I think we're at around twelve hundred churches now that that we've worked with. And during the course of the consulting work, there's uh, kind of an informal survey that we do. Uh, so the Acts 2 journey, it's based on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So kind of a description there of what the early church was like. What did the early church do? Uh, how did they go about living out their newfound Christian faith? So uh, let's just read through those verses really quickly. In fact, last time I was here, Pastor Nick spoke uh, on these verses, did a, did a great job. But Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. What did the church do? All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them. 
and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Begin to get a picture of what this early church was like. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together in the, at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper. A few references to eating in here. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So there are really kind of five functions that, that people who do the work of, of church health, consulting, that sort of thing, uh, kind of come up with from this passage that the church should be about. Those five functions are worship, discipleship, service, or, or kind of gift-oriented ministry, uh, hospitality, and evangelism. So as part of the consulting work we do, we do a kind of an informal survey on these five functions. Uh, we ask churches, what do you see yourself as most effective in? And then what do you see yourself as maybe least effective in? A place that you can maybe increase your effectiveness of these five. And almost without exception, churches give us the same answer for what they're least effective in. Almost without exception. Now this church could be the one exception of the 1200. I, I realize that, but I'm going to move forward with the assumption that, that you're not. They say that evangelism is always the lowest of the five. Evangelism, sharing the good news, this idea of being Christ to uh, those outside the church. Another irony is that they often say that this is the subject that the pastor speaks about the most. So evangelism is the thing that we're the worst at, but it's also the thing that we hear about the most, most from the, the pulpit, so I don't know what that, what that says. And another irony here is, really, this is what the church is called to do, uh, first and foremost, so love God and love others, the great commandment. But then, of course, the great commission found in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore, and here it is, go and make disciples of all the nations. Aren't you glad he doesn't stop there, but he, he tells us how. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is clear about what our mission is as his followers. And yet so many churches evaluate themselves as doing a pretty poor job of evangelism. So why does this disconnect exist? You could probably think of uh, plenty of reasons on your own. Um, I want to suggest one possible reason is because all of the other functions we do together. Evangelism often is the one that we say, go forth, and you're kind of on your own. So we worship together. We do discipleship in groups. We often serve together. Uh, we welcome guests together. But when it comes to evangelism, you're out the door. You're kind of left to do it by yourself. It can be a pretty daunting task. Make disciples of all nations, but you're on your own. <laughs> the other functions of the church are team sports. Evangelism somehow has become an individual sport. So with that, we, we come to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read here verses 13 and 14. 
Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So to just give us kind of a shorthand way of thinking about this, Jesus here is calling his disciples to be, number one, set apart. Be the salt of the earth. You're to be set apart, be, to be different. And secondly, to be visible, to be the light of the world, to be visible. So to be set apart and to be visible. So to be salt, to be made the light of the world, is a call for the church to be set apart or holy and to be visible. I think one of the things that is easy to overlook in this passage, we focus a lot on salt and light, and what are those two things? What is the significance of those two metaphors that Jesus uses? But one thing that we often skip right over is the first word of those two commands or those two statements, you, you. So if you've studied other languages, you're aware that you is a, a second-person pronoun. Now, this is in my notes. I'm just going off of, I majored in English, so I hope I'm right here. <laughs> you is a second-person pronoun. You, second-person singular, is you. You, second-person plural, is also you. Unless you're from Springfield, Missouri, where I'm from, where you, second-person plural, becomes y'all. Yeah, okay, good. So you're, you know that language. So in other languages, however, there's a, there's a distinction between you, second person singular, and you, second person plural. So in the, in the Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written, we have a, a second person plural, you. And this is, you probably already know this, you can pick it up from the context, but in, in Matthew 5.1, just to, just to show you to make this clear, Matthew 5, 1, the, the, the author describes it this way. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So just it's important to recognize right off the bat that this is not a conversation that Jesus is just having with Peter sitting down face to face. This is a, a crowd of gathered disciples who have gathered around Jesus. And he says, you, or to translate it into Ozark's English, y'all, Y'all, you all, all of you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. So right away, we're given this command that is not just an individual mandate. So to follow Jesus and to lead others into relationship with Jesus, even though we've maybe made it an individual sport or attempted to think about it as an individual sport, really is a team sport. So maybe we can take comfort in that fact today. And it'll take some practice to kind of um, work out what that means and, and to make that switch. And it often does with, with churches who are kind of caught in this rut with evangelism. A, a theologian who I really admire, you've probably heard, in fact, I know you've heard Nick quote this theologian because I listen to Nick's messages almost every week. Uh, he says, uh, this is Stanley Hauerwas, he says, the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, it's not addressed to individuals, but to the community that Jesus begins through the calling of the disciples. He says that the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is not a heroic ethic. It is the constitution or the, the bringing together of a people. And he says this, which I, which I like so much. He says, you cannot live by the demands of the sermon on your own. 
But that's the point. This is never something that we're supposed to, to shoulder on our own. Now, we have to hold intention that each of us has our own spheres of influence. We have a sphere of, of people who, who Jesus has called us to be salt and light to, who really nobody else can reach because nobody else has the same relationships, maybe a spouse, right? But nobody else has the same relationships with that group of people. But really on a broader scale, this is a team sport. Evangelism is something that we're called to do together as the body of Christ. So we'll take a look at maybe what that looks like. There's a thread here in Jesus' words, his commands to be salt and light, that we can trace through Scripture. So it's not just as though Jesus is sort of pulling this out of thin air and saying, um, now go and make disciples, you are salt, you are light, all of you together. This really comes from, it's embedded in the 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 thrust of scripture, the narrative of scripture. So the people of Israel, right, are set apart to follow God, to follow Yahweh. And Yahweh gives a command back in Leviticus so that the people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt and uh, they've, they've come through that time and now God is giving the law to Moses. And he really kind of gives this umbrella command which uh, all of the other um, uh, laws and some of you who have read through Leviticus know that the many laws that follow in, in the book, they can kind of come under this umbrella of this command that, that God gives to Moses in Leviticus 19.2. And here it is. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instruction, catch this, to the entire community of Israel. To the entire community of Israel. So have the genesis here of of a team sport. You must be holy, there it is again, set apart, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So Jesus, in some ways, is really hearkening back to this passage in Leviticus, although he's not doing it explicitly. We might say that he's doing it implicitly. He's hearkening back to this scripture in Leviticus, this command that God gave to the people of Israel. You shall be set apart because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So this command situates all of Israel together. And like Jesus' call to be light is addressed to the whole community of the gathered disciples, Yahweh's call to be holy is addressed to the entire people of Israel. So there's a, a, a church father, origin of Alexandria. He was a bishop in Alexandria in the third century. He's kind of one of the, one of the forebears of, of our Christian faith. Um, it's, it's, isn't it great that our faith stretches back 2,000 years and we don't have to um, uh, rely on our own ingenuity <laughs> all of the time? Um, boy, that would be difficult. He, uh, Origen, really wrote prolifically uh, when he was alive. Uh, I shouldn't say he wrote, he dictated to a number of secretaries. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> he didn't do much writing, but he said words that people thought were good enough that they, that they wrote down. But he has this way, in the way that he interprets scripture, uh, to kind of cut through difficult passages and to simplify them. So as you might imagine, he spent a lot of time in Leviticus, kind of cutting through some of the difficulty in Leviticus, making it clear. And he's, he had this to say about holiness. He offers this definition. He says, holiness is a calling to be with God, where God is, and where God goes. So if the idea of holiness is a little bit uh, weird to you, maybe you grew up in a tradition where you kind of burned by the idea of holiness. We won't go into all of that. But holiness simply is a calling to be with God, where God is, and where God goes. So if we were to reread Leviticus 19.2 with this definition in mind, we would, we would see this. You shall be with me where I am, 
and go with me where I go. Not just that we're set apart from the world, but we're set apart to follow God. Not just set apart from the world, but set apart for intimacy with God. And where is God going? Well, God is going to the world. We'll look at that a little bit later. So how have we maybe misinterpreted holiness? Like the way that I heard one person say it, if you're happy and you know it, it's a sin, which is (laughs) the wrong version of that song. But sometimes we think of holiness in those terms. We've thought of holiness, this idea of being set apart as uh, a flight from the world, as maybe a, an over-obsession with uh, modesty or purity. We've thought of it as maybe a list of, uh, an ever-increasing long list of prohibitions, things we can't do. And maybe we've thought of it as a, as a retreat into uh, a judgmental hideaway. So holiness, uh, wrongly conceived, you might be able to deduce this, creates a barrier between us and others. So it becomes, um, instead of being something that, that propels us forward into mission, it becomes an impediment to mission. If we always are retreating into judgmental hideaways, creating these uh, games where we can kind of compare ourselves to, to one another. That's a barrier and, and not, a, uh, not something that drives us forward in mission. So there, again, a couple of problems. The first is that we see evangelism as an individual sport, something that we're called to do individually. So the second problem then is that in an effort to be set apart, in an effort to be faithful to Christ's command to be salt and light and to Yahweh's command to be holy as I am holy, we have really, maybe unintentionally, but we've created some outward markers that have become barriers between ourselves and others. Does that sort of make sense? Maybe you've seen that. So holiness is sometimes viewed as our license to sort of play the comparison game. So we're all familiar with the proverbial phrase, holier than thou, kind of generates out of this line of thinking. So how do we practice holiness without a flight from the world, a world that is sorely in need of a savior? I would argue this morning that being properly set apart is not just a matter of individual moral effort. Anyone try to ever work individual transformation on your own, in your own power, in your own strength? You might think of it this way, pick a, pick a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and, and 23, that list of fruits of the Spirit, and think, okay, this week I'm going to be uh, more loving. And so you might start the day on Monday morning, um, you're really kind to your, your spouse or, or a roommate, um, you say, um, you know, use your manners, all of that stuff, you are um, just very kind, and um, go out of your way to um, maybe scrape the car in the winter, um, so you're, you know, just kind of going out of your way, and then you get to work, and you're really going out of your way, again, to be loving to your coworkers, and then you meet that, that one person, and maybe I don't have to go any further, but if you, if you try in your own strength, you'll probably last till about noon on Monday, with this new experiment, and then your, your, your bubble of, of faith will be sort of deflated. If we try to do things in our own strength, we're going to be disappointed. I would argue that the same is true for uh, this idea of evangelism. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need the mercy of God if we're going to invade, engage in evangelism in an appropriate and effective way. 
So I would say that it, it's, say it this way, it's my reliance on the mercy of God to pursue a rightly ordered life that enables me to go with God where God goes. So that's our definition of holiness, going with God where God goes. It's a reliance on the mercy of God that makes that possible. So if we are set apart to follow God, maybe we should get this clear up front. Where is God going? Where is God going? Well, he's going to the one caught in sin. We see this throughout scripture. He's going to the one who needs redemption, even if that person hasn't recognized it yet. So in Luke chapter 15, we read this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So Jesus told them a story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, or maybe appropriately an image this morning, will joyfully carry it home in his arms. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So where is God going? God is always going to the lost ones. So if we're going to follow him well, we're also going to the one who is outside the fold of God. So if a wrong view of holiness or of set-apartness leads to barriers between us and others, how can we recapture a healthy vision of holiness and one that, that uh, not only isn't an impediment to mission, but that propels us forward in mission? Now, for some of us here this morning, I realize that the phrase, um, lead others to Christ, might cause your hands to clam up, cause you to break out into a cold sweat. Aren't you glad that uh, God created us differently and he didn't say, now you have to be an extrovert to be effective in the things that I've called you to do. All the introverts would raise their hands if they weren't introverts. I am among them. I'm so glad that you can be an introvert and carry out God's mission, obey his command. So I maybe want to Re, retrain our, our thinking a little bit when it comes to evangelism. Uh, so maybe, maybe think, about, think about it this way. This would be an important, often unspoken first step. So before we can, and here's the scary part, lead others to Christ, we must first yield to him as he leads us to others. So before we can lead others to Christ, this is often unspoken, but we have to yield to him as he leads us to others. So there's maybe an important language shift. You can think about it this way. How might our commitment to God's mission open up opportunities to allow, to, to allow us to lead others to Christ? We might think about that phrase this way. How might our commitment to God's mission open up opportunities for Christ to lead us to others? So unless we're rubbing shoulders with the one and not just the 99, how is effective evangelism ever going to, to take place? Let me provide just a couple of um, practical examples that might help us kind of put flesh on how holiness 
not only doesn't create a, a barrier to, uh, between us and others, but it actually enables mission. So if I spend all of my working hours around people who gossip, I'd better rely on the Spirit to guard my heart against gossip so, so that I can distance myself from them when necessary. Uh, and not even for the, the sole purpose of, of correcting them, but so that I can model for them more life-giving forms of speech. So in this instance, if, you, if you're around people who are, uh, tend to gossip, holiness probably resembles exhibiting grace. So being salt and light probably resembles uh, the ability to maybe creatively divert a conversation away from gossip. Or um, here's another one. If, if my job requires me to place the, the company's financial bottom line above all else, I had better develop a reliance on the Holy Spirit with regard to my finances so that they don't run my life, run my family's life, and govern my every decision. I better place myself before God and ask for his mercy for the ways that I've let my financial situation kind of govern my life and become the grid through which I run all of my decisions. So in this instance, holiness and set-apartness probably looks a lot like gratitude for the things that you have. Holiness probably looks a lot like generosity. So holiness, again, not just separation from the world, it is separation for intimacy with God to be lived out for the sake of the world. There are ways that our being salt and light, again, properly understood as being with God, where God is and where God goes, through the Spirit's whisper, works upon the hearts of the watching world. So the people in the Cedar Valley with whom you interact with whom you rub shoulders. Evangelism doesn't necessarily only, I want to be careful here, doesn't necessarily only look like you leading someone in the sinner's prayer, although it might look like that. But it also, again, if we're in this together, it looks like this community here at Grace Community living up to its name. And as you walk through the doors today, exhibiting that grace to the watching world. So we know what to do when we're here together on Sunday morning, but do we know what this looks like on a Tuesday morning lived out? And that's really the difficult part, but that's where the rubber uh, meets the road, as they say. So I want to close with just, just one story and a couple, of, a couple of concrete practices that we might try. Uh, maybe even one of them we could, we could try this morning. We're going to receive communion um, so, uh, musicians, if, if, you'd, if you'd come, I'm, I'm just going to tell this, this kind of brief story, and we're going to end with a couple of practices. Does that sound good? Yeah. There's a guy named James McConnell. He's the president of something called Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. And this program, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, it's the largest and most comprehensive freestanding healthcare for the homeless in the United States. O'Connell is also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's a doctor at, the, uh, at MassGen, Massachusetts General Hospital. So he's got all of these credentials, and yet he starts this work among the homeless. So he starts working among the people who can't pay him for all of his expertise. And he's written a memoir. It's called Stories from the Shadows. Uh, the subtitle is Refre Reflections of a Street Doctor. So he treats patients not only in mass gen, where they get um, you know, state-of-the-art care, but he, he treats people on the streets. 
So he tells this story of uh, his interaction with some of the nurses who are involved in this healthcare for the homeless program. He says, one of the nurses who became really my mentor and my hero was named Barbara McGinnis. And Barbara, his first day on the job doing this healthcare on the streets, he says, Barbara lifted my stethoscope from around my neck and put all my doctor stuff aside. And she said, for the next two months, I want you to soak feet. Soak feet. Everybody get that? It's a little weird, so I want you to soak feet. He says, I wasn't allowed to ask any medical questions. I couldn't say that I was a doctor, or I couldn't do any of the things that I had been taught to do. There's probably a number of sermons in here, maybe about foot washing, but we're not going to practice that, so don't, don't worry. Your mind's going fast there. We're not doing that. He says, I can remember her telling me that one of the problems was, when I was in training, we had to go too fast. She asked me, how was I going to learn how to slow down? And she was right. When we're doctors, we have to see somebody every 10 or 15 minutes. And if we're not doing that, somebody knocks on the door to see if they can help us move along. So Barbara and the other nurses explained that when you've been wandering the streets for years, you will not trust anyone unless they commit themselves, here it is, to, to being there, to being present, taking time. And I remember one person uh, whose feet Barbara had me soak was a man I had known many times as a doctor in the emergency room at Mass Gen. Says he suffered from a type of paranoid schizophrenia. And this is the part that really stuck out to me. He says, we as the doctors had sort of labeled him as treatment resistant. I'm a little discouraged to know that there's a label as, such as treatment resistant. But I hope uh, as you think about people in your own life who, who need Jesus, you would never apply any such label to them. We'd sort of labeled him treatment resistance, res- resistance. After about six weeks of just soaking his feet, he looked down at me and he said, hey, since he had never said a word to me before, he said, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. So I looked up and one, I lit up because he was the first person in the entirety of this program who had referred to him as doctor. And, and uh, o- O'Connell said, yeah, I, I am a doctor. He says, then what, are the, what in the world are you doing soaking feet? He says, I remember answering. I said, I, I don't know. I just do whatever the nurses tell me. And he looked down with a kind of wry smile and said, smart man. And O'Connell says, that was the beginning of my relationship with him. He came in a few nights later and asked me if I could give him something to help him sleep. And I remember we gave him a medicine that was a good sleeping medicine, but also a a mild antipsychotic. He took that. He came back a few nights later and said, hey, doc, that was pretty good. Maybe I could get a a little stronger dose. And he said, sure. So he upped the dose. He says, that was the beginning of a one-month journey in which he accepted and asked for the medications that we had spent 25 years in the hospital trying to get him to take. O'Connell says he spent the next 20 years in a group home, instead of on the streets. He wasn't in the emergency room, been in and out, wasn't in the emergency room anymore. He says, I remember thinking that, you know, he was not at all resistant to the medications. We just had a system that was very impersonal, and we just didn't understand how to address his particular needs. He closes the story by saying, I remember the nurses looking at me and saying, see? He says, that was a pretty good learning experience. So a couple of practices. What do you 
to commit to being uh, with other people who are outside of the fold, being patient with them. So the first practice, if faithful evangelism is something that we do together rather than separately, we need to engage together regularly. So one of these practices you're already doing by, by being here. But as part of this, this community, I would encourage you, so practice number one would be to find someone who is doing it well and learn from them. So without a nurse, McConnell never would have slowed down long enough to engage in this kind of treatment for, for this man who so desperately needed it. So who in this community is doing evangelism well? Who in this community is engaging with others, connecting with them well that you might imitate? And the second the second practice that, that we might engage in, we're going to receive communion here in a moment, but I would encourage you to uh, come forward and, and receive the elements and, and go back to our seats. I would encourage you as you receive the elements um, to, to pull out your cell phone Ask the Lord, as you, I don't know if it's possible to hold the elements in your hand at the same time you hold your cell phone in your hand, but maybe you can receive the elements first and then, and then take your cell phone in your hand and ask God to speak to you. So much of evangelism is just the assumption that we're not doing enough when we haven't taken time to stop and hear what the Spirit is really speaking. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Maybe that's what the Spirit would speak to you. But I would encourage you to ask, ask the Holy Spirit, is there someone in my life who today is in need of a word of encouragement? It might even be somebody here in this room, but it very well could be someone outside the fold of God. Is there someone who's, um, with whom I was in relationship before, before I left a, a past life, and came to know Jesus, with whom I have completely lost touch. And they now are in desperate need of the hope that, that I have found. Don't you think that the Holy Spirit might bring someone to your mind? If you're engaging in a practice that Jesus has commanded us to do, go and make disciples, Lord, would you give me someone just to send a, a brief text message to? Maybe, maybe it's not today, maybe it's sometime during the week, or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a phone call or an email, just a way to reconnect with that person. But that's about as practical as we can get, and it's no easier than that, sorry introverts, but it's no harder than that. That's not very much of an investment, but the more that we can practice hearing the voice of the Spirit, the more effective we can become in engaging in evangelism. So ask you to do that, and as we prepare to come to the table this morning, uh, just say that uh, at Grace Community we practice an open table, so you're, you're welcome to come. The only thing that uh, is a requirement is that you've uh, professed your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so we'll, we'll come to the table here uh, of the Lord in just a moment. As an invitation to the table, just want to read um, this section of scripture from, from 1 Corinthians. would you stand as we as we prepare to come to the table Paul says for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. So we'll just form a couple of lines, one table here and one table here. You can come forward, receive the elements, and we'll receive them on our